You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Rob Henderson. Rob um, is a, a PhD student in psychology, and he is a writer. Uh, he's written about psychology, social class, and success. And he is currently writing a memoir, um, of which I've, I've read a little um, sneak peek excerpt, and I'm actually very excited about the memoir. I've also invited Rob on because of his very unusual background, which has given him a quite unique perspective on the current cultural and social scene. I'd like to begin there, perhaps, with your upbringing, uh, Rob. You said uh, in one of your articles that I've recently read, you said, I would trade every accomplishment I've ever enjoyed to have never had to witness so much grief and disrepair as a child. And you have also talked about how you are perhaps the only person currently doing a, a Cambridge PhD who was taking weed at age six and driving blind drunk, blackout drunk on the motorways uh, as an adolescent. So could you, could you tell us a, a little bit about your background, your, um, your experiences with the foster care system and with your adoptive parents? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah. And, and thanks, Iona, for, for uh, welcoming me. Um, and, and just a, a brief uh, clarification. I was, I was nine when I was smoking weed, uh, not six. That would have been, I mean, even, even I think that's a little, a little too young. Nine, you know, you're, you're <laughs> seasoned, you're seasoned by that point. No. Um, so yeah, I, uh, like you said, I'm, so I'm currently PhD uh, student here in Cambridge, but um, yeah, I took a sort of winding, uh, indirect path to uh, higher education. Um, so yeah, just backing way up, I was uh, born into poverty uh, to my mother, who uh, had immigrated from South Korea as a young woman. Uh, she uh, went to California, and you know, she got hooked on drugs and. When I, was, when I was three years old, she basically succumbed to her addiction and was no longer able to care for me. So I was placed in the foster care system. I'd never met my birth father. Um, I have no memories of him. And so, yeah, at that point, I'd spent uh, the next five years or so bouncing around different foster homes in Los Angeles. And yeah, it was um, a very disorderly and chaotic environment for me. Um, you know, I was weighed down by all of the sort of emotional turmoil and the, I mean, it wasn't just me moving around. It was also seeing my foster siblings, uh, continually, you know, uh, taken from me and not knowing where I would go next. And there, there was just, uh, all of the chaos and uncertainty of that as well. Um, and 
when I was, uh, yeah, just a couple of months before my eighth birthday, um, I was adopted into a working class family and we settled in a town called Red Bluff in Northern California. It's a sort of dusty town about two hours north of Sacramento. And yeah, it was sort of blue collar, more rural environment. Um, at that point in the late 90s, the uh, median household income was around $27,000 a year, which is about half of what it was for California overall. So it was a pretty poverty stricken uh, area, one of the poorest counties uh, in California, if not the country. Um, but I was happy because I had this family. Um, I had a mother and a father and a, a younger sister. She was their biological daughter who became my adoptive younger sister. Um, I'm still close with her today. Um, and so for a, a brief period, um, just shy of about two years, I was living with them and it was, uh, yeah, it was, you know, uh, the most stable, uh, period up to that point in my life. Uh, my grades improved and I was paying more attention in school and just sort of, uh, becoming more of a happy go lucky kid. Uh, but then they divorced, um, when I was nine and, uh, from that point I was raised by a single mom. I adoptive father severed ties with me. Uh, he was angry at my adoptive mother for divorcing him. And he figured that by, you know, his, um, stopping, uh, his communication with me, this would hurt my adoptive mother. And, uh, and then he was right. So my mother was hurt by this and I was hurt by this. And so, you know, by that point I was, I was already pretty, uh, conflicted and upset that I'd never known my real father. And then, um, no longer having, you know, the one man in my life who I'd actually referred to as my father decided he didn't want to be in my life anymore, um, was extremely difficult for me. So, you know, I was living with my, you know, raised by a single mom at that point, we were living in a, in a small duplex in Red Bluff. My mom was working. I was this latchkey kid getting into all kinds of trouble. This is when I started smoking a lot of weed, cigarettes, um, you know, taking a large amounts of cold medicine, trying to get high, um, taking generic Vicodin and whatever pills we could get our hands on. You know, so there were other kids in the neighborhood who were also raised by single parents or grandparents or foster parents or whatever sort of alternate family arrangements. So, I mean, there's a lot more to this that we can get into, but this is just sort of the, 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 you know, the, the cliff notes version. And, you know, uh, it was, it was just a lot of drama and chaos, uh, until I, until I left, until I decided to make the decision to, to leave my town. One of the things I've noticed is a recurrent theme in your writing, and it's really very refreshing to me in the current climate, is that as far as childhood happiness and life happiness are concerned, um, emotional stability and really re receiving uh, care and attention and love um, are more important than socioeconomic status. So there seems to be this, um, this conception that it's all about privilege and privilege is based on, um, based on, on, um, race and gender and sexuality and other things like that, but which are ultimately viewed as proxies for economic well-being. Right. And although as, as you, as you of course point out, when you are dirt poor, um, economic well-being, uh, economic anxieties are uppermost in your mind all the time. Um, when you really don't have enough money, then money 
becomes of paramount importance. But as far as um, people's life success and happiness, I mean, their their kind of real success, i.e. how how happy and content they feel, um, that is largely a product of the kind of emotional stability um, that surrounds them and the kind of love that they receive. Um, yeah. Is that a, is that a fair, <laughs> fair summary? Yeah. That was something that I've, yeah, I've, I've tried to underline that point in different ways in different essays and articles I've written. Um, it's something I discuss and flesh out even further uh, in my uh, forthcoming memoir. And I think it's often overlooked, you know, there's a lot of discussion, especially among, you know, very educated people, uh, that the only sort of the only metrics of success in life are your level of education and your earnings or your future earnings. You know, these, whenever I see articles about, you know, sort of childhood deprivation or disadvantage or what have you, it's always framed in terms of like, oh, well, if a kid is raised in this kind of environment, if they grow up in a low income family, they're X percent more or less likely to be, you know, imprisoned or uh, get hooked on drugs or, um, you know, less likely to go to college, you know, all all of this. And and to me, all of this, you know, it's, these are all sort of um, proxies, I think, for well-being and happiness. And there are, there are markers of success that go beyond or to me that are just more important than how much education you receive or how much money you end up making. And, and that was my sort of point where I, I, I stated that, you know, yeah, it's, you know, I, I, I am grateful for the unusual trajectory of my life. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make all that I had gone through. Okay. Um, you know, people will ask me, you know, how do we get more foster kids to college or how do we, you know, make sure that they, you know, achieve more educationally or something. And I, I think to myself, you know, even if every foster kid goes to some fancy university uh, later on in life, like that's, that's not really solving the root problem there. Um, and so that's what I'd, I'd prefer people to focus on more is, is looking at the sort of beginning of the problem rather than sort of the end after they'd already gone through all of the turmoil uh, in their early life. I mean, those early childhood memories, uh, they stick with you. I mean, the first you know, 18 years of your life loom larger, I think, than, than a lot of what comes next. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things I've written is that, um, you know, that period between when you're a kid, that period between, uh, the beginning of fall term and winter break, you know, September to December feels like an eternity. Uh, and as an adult, it flies by. I mean, for, as an adult, September comes around and you're like, oh, it's almost Christmas. But as a kid, September is December from September is just, you know, that's an eternity away. And so childhood just feels endless and it feels even longer when you're uh, mired in dysfunction and drama and, and poverty and all of those things that, that just make life uh, much worse for kids. Yeah, you, I mean, I do want to return to your personal, your personal experiences, but you talk about, um, you offer some statistical statistics to back this up. Um, so you say that, for example, um, rich kids who grew up in highly unstable environments, highly emotionally unstable environments, so with abusive parents or absent parents um, or neglectful parents, um, are more likely to end up um, taking drugs or um, committing crimes than poor kids but who came from stable families. 
And likewise, poor kids, even poor kids from single parent um, or broken families or neglectful or abusive families in some way, of course, I'm not equating all of those categories, um, but families that are not uh, two-parent families who are poor are nevertheless much more likely to uh, not to do much less likely to do drugs, to turn to crime, are much more likely to go to college than uh, kids who are in in the foster system. And that implies also that it's not all about economics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so those statistics, I I mean, there, there have been a few different studies on this. I mean, basically making this distinction between what researchers have called um, you know, uh, childhood uh, unpredictability or instability versus um, uh, harshness. Harshness is basically a you know a, it means like economic deprivation. So growing up poor versus growing up in chaos, and yeah, I mean researchers have found repeatedly that um, instability is much more detrimental for kids than than economic uh, economic uh, shortcomings. Or, or low income uh, in their family environment. So, you know, instability is basically, um, uh, yeah, researchers ask people, you know, questions like, you know, how, how often did you relocate as a kid? How many different adults moved in and out of the house? You know, how uncertain were, uh, was your sort of everyday experience? Um, how frequently did your family change jobs? And, you know, step parents, like all of those kinds of things. Uh, if you ever lived in foster homes, and if so, how many? So all of those things together um, are, you know, sort of this, this instability uh, variable is, is um, much, much more uh, uh, of an impediment. And I've tried to use this example in the past of um, comparing and contrasting uh the outcomes of foster kids versus the outcomes of, of kids from low-income families. So uh, if you look at children who are raised in the bottom quintile, um, so the bottom 20% in terms of income of their families, uh, in, at least in the U.S., about 11% of those kids from very low-income families go on to graduate from college uh, when they become adults. Uh, whereas if you look at foster kids, uh, the number is 3%. So in other words, if you're a kid from a poor family, you're four times more likely to graduate from college than if you're a kid who's spent uh, time in foster care. And, you know, something that I've, I've also pointed out is that, you know, foster families, I mean, there very few foster families are like, you know, ex- exorbitantly wealthy or something, but most of them, they have to meet like a certain economic threshold to qualify to take care of kids. And so very few of them are, 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 are living in poverty or, or truly destitute. And so it's really not about like the kid not having enough to eat or something like that. It's really about that sort of instability and that uncertainty of the kid's life uh, that that plagues uh, the kid, you know, as as they're moving through through the different homes and the different you know, moving through the system. So this is why I I highlight this. I mean, I I try not to downplay the uh, the 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 role that poverty can play in kids' lives, but at least from what I observed. And my own experiences, in addition to the research that I've encountered, it's just um, it's something that that people need to disentangle more. That it, uh, poverty alone is not really the problem here. There's there's a bunch of other um, you know other things we should be focusing on beyond uh, the economic variable. You know, sort of the social, the emotional, the cultural. There's a lot of things that that uh, affect kids beyond just um, you know how much money their family happens to have. Yeah. So you've given us the kind of Cliff Notes version, but I'd like to delve a little bit more deeply into some of your childhood experiences. Um, I don't want you to force 
to force you to um, kind of rehearse a gloom fest for us on this podcast, <laughs> sure. if you don't wish to. Um, but your story is really quite um, powerful. Mm. I'm I'm just going to read a, a really short passage. This is from one of your articles. You write, My earliest memory is of me gripping my mother in the dark, burying my face so deeply into her stomach I can't breathe. It's dark. I come up for air and see two police officers looming over us. They want to take her away. I'm scared. I don't want to let her go. I fasten myself to her as hard as I can. Suddenly, I'm in a long white hallway. I'm sitting on a bench next to my mother drinking chocolate milk. My three-year-old legs dangle above the floor. I sneeze and spill my milk. I look to my mom for help, but she can't move her arms. She's wearing handcuffs. I start to cry. That year, I entered the Los Angeles County foster care system. I never saw my mother again. So that's that's the beginning of a a series of, um, I guess, abandonments. I would say um, that ran through your childhood and adolescence. Um, can you talk us through your experiences after your after your mother died? Uh, in the foster care system and how it, uh, um, in the, and how it felt when you were first adopted. Uh, yeah. So my mother, she didn't, uh, she didn't die. I mean, she was arrested. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. my mother, my mother died. Oh. And, uh, yeah. So, um, hmm. that was very Freudian. Um, right. but yes, carry on. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, yeah. She was, she was arrested. But, but yeah. So I entered the, the system and yeah. And so, you know, I, I, yeah, I described this before. I was moving into different foster homes and um, I was adopted later, uh, raised by my my adoptive mother after my adoptive father had left us or left me and, you know, in the wake of the divorce between them. And yeah, I mean, what I one thing that I had found consistently was that my my grades and my attitude towards school and towards life really reflected what was going on around me. Um, in foster care, I mean, my, my grades were a mess. I, you know, it was just, uh, I didn't learn to read really. I, I was, I had to teach myself eventually how to read. Um, I ended up having to take an IQ test because my grades were so low. The state of California mandated that I take this test and, you know, I scored below average overall. Um, so I was in my final foster home at age seven and this you know, psychologist came over, administered this test to me and, I was sort of half paying attention, half not zoning in and out. I just, I didn't see the use of taking this test and how, you know, what the purpose of it was, why I should care about it, why I should care about school or my future. And yeah, I scored below average overall and in the bottom 10% on the verbal portion uh, because I, you know, no one had ever read to me and in school I didn't care to read. Um, later, uh I, after I was adopted, my grades improved. I was doing pretty well. And then after the divorce, my, my grades uh, plummeted once again, and I started getting into more trouble. You know, part of that was also befriending a lot of kids, uh, in the area who were, I mean, Red Bluff as a whole, I mean, I, I think, uh, it, it was, a not, not the optimal environment for, for a kid like me. I mean, it's, it consistently ranks in like the top three or four most dangerous cities in California, uh, a lot of drugs and violence and so on. So, um, yeah, I was, you know, vandalizing buildings, uh, doing drugs, getting into fights. Um, 
But then uh, my mom met this woman and started a relationship with her, uh, this woman named Shelly. And together they they built this uh, stable home environment for me uh, throughout my uh, sort of middle school years. Um, and that was yet another sort of period of stability in my childhood, which I've attributed to some degree, you know, sort of how I came to have the sort of social and political views that I have now was just that the, the way that that family environment, um, the lessons that I took and the way that it shaped me and so forth. So my mother and her partner raised me together, uh, into my adolescence. Um, and even though it was, I suppose, atypical in some ways because it was two women. In many ways, it was a sort of traditional, you know, quote unquote, traditional family life. I mean, they went to work, they took care of us. My sister and I, we had family dinners every night. We played board games once a week. We, you know, there was just a lot of like the sort of typical family functioning that you would see anywhere else. Um, and I was really, uh, you know, at the time, I, I, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I should have. But in hindsight, um, especially as I grew older and I realized just um, how much I missed that. So the summer before my first year of high school, my freshman year, uh, Shelly, my, my mother's partner, who I had grown quite attached to, um, she was shot. And so there was a period of a couple of weeks, we weren't sure what was going to happen, whether she would survive, and if so, how severe her injuries would be. Um, unfortunately, she did. She did survive. But, um, you know, she was basically like unable at least for the next year or so as she was recovering she wasn't really able to function as as she was before quite understandably and my mom was very preoccupied with helping to care for her we had more uh, financial problems because Shelly wasn't able to work and you know it just sort of changed the emotional atmosphere of the house um and yeah you know at that point I started getting into trouble again and uh, neglecting my my uh, assignments and and yeah I mean that plus just the 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 usual experience of puberty uh, at that age was just uh, it was a lot and plus the environment that I was in once I entered high school and it was a different kind of environment uh, a lot of sort of mischievous kids and you know I was I was more than happy to be one of them and that was when I started you know uh, getting blackout drunk and racing my friends on the freeway and you know just doing a lot of you know, getting into more fights and getting into a lot of trouble, not going to class, cutting classes a lot. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's, there's even more to this, uh, story, believe it or not. But, uh, but yeah, from there it was, um, as, as my high school years sort of, uh, uh, were coming to an end, I, I began to realize that, um, I was on this bad path. Um, I'm not exactly sure what it was that made me realize it, I think I'd always maybe harbored some hopes for my future and they just, you know, it sort of waxed and waned throughout my, my youth. But I understood that uh, if I stayed in Red Bluff, um, I was going to, um, you know, probably end up, uh, you know, best case scenario in like a kind of dead end job, um, but more likely, you know, something worse than that. So yeah, there were some people around me. There was a male high school teacher who had been enlisted in the military. He pulled me aside one day and he was like, you know, you should really consider just enlisting. Like he saw some potential in me. He encouraged me to enlist. Um, the father of one of my best friends in high school also recommended the same thing. He was also a veteran. And so, you know, there were adults around me who were encouraging. This is something else that I've pointed out too, is that, you know, it's good to give kids encouragement, but a lot of kids just won't believe it, especially when they've, they're, they've sort of been 
neglected or abandoned or what have you, if they've just never like really had a, a secure and stable uh, attachment with a, a parent or a caregiver or something, especially in the early years of their life, later on, if adults around them are like, oh, yeah, you know, I can see the potential in you. I see you're smart and all the other things that adults would say to me. I just didn't believe them. And so, you know, but but gradually, I think the message did sink in, you know, after I heard enough of those, and especially since I uh, knew that after high school, I didn't really have anywhere else to go, um, that the military was probably my best uh, option. And so when I was 17, like, you know, literally right after graduation, I, I um, left uh, for basic training. I think that one of the the things that I find unusual about the way in which you talk about and present your story is that you don't, you're not triumphalist about it. You don't take the attitude that um, I I um, conquered these adversities and I'm really happy that this this uh, these kind of challenges made me the person who I am. And you are always adamant that you would rather be less conventionally successful than you currently are and not have had those experiences. And you talk in several places about um, what you call, I think, the lingering effects. Um, sorry, let me find that. Um, yes, you say um, college degrees and a comfortable salary are not antidotes to the lingering effects of childhood maltreatment. I think that might actually be in the little excerpt from your from your book that you sent me. Hmm. Um, may I ask if it's not too personal or what you feel the lingering effects were on you of the childhood experiences that you have had? Yeah. I mean, when I was a teenager, it was just a lot of rage and anger. And, and I was also, I mean, I was, uh, you know, an unsophisticated kid. So I just didn't really understand what was going on with me. And so I, it was just expressed in, you know, getting into fights or drugs or taking extremely um, uh, unwise risks with my friends. Um, you know, we would we would stand on on train tracks when trains were coming, and we'd we'd call it, play it. You know, we call it uh, playing chicken. So, you know, me and the other my other friend, you know, we'd we'd like put one leg in, sort of stand there on the tracks, and like whoever whoever jumped off the tracks first as the train was approaching was the you know the quote unquote loser. You know, which is, you know, in hindsight, I don't know if that's, uh, you know, who's who's really the loser if you stay on too long there. But um, yeah, so so things like that, it was just uh, expressed itself in in this um, aggressive and risk taking way. And then later on, I mean, it, it manifested itself in a bunch of different ways in my, you know, just the way that I viewed myself, my, you know, just my ability to later on, like experience happiness and relationships and you know I don't want to give too much away here because I, I delve deep into this in in my book but it was just a, a lot of different ways uh, especially as I got older one thing that was beneficial for me in the military was that it sort of created the stability for me to to then reflect on all that I had gone through and sort of realize everything that had happened and and help me to understand like why I was having uh, the difficulties that I was having. And and even to this day, you know, I, I can still sort of, exp you know, I, I can still feel it sometimes with me. And yeah, it took a lot of uh, a lot of reflection, a lot of work and so on to, to really kind of understand all of it and, you know, be as okay as I can be with it. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something that 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 affects a lot of a lot of people who've, who've gone through um, those kinds of uh, you know, that, that kind of an upbringing. 
Yeah, I I mean I'm I'm asking also partly because I I also had a quite a much more common or garden unhappy childhood, mm-hmm. um, much less dramatic, much less yeah, much less traumatic than your childhood, but and nevertheless was very I think just emotionally impoverished mm-hmm. um, from about from the time when my father died, my mother died first, and then my father. And from when my father died until I went to university, and I was fostered um, mostly by my older sister, my older half-sister, who's 19 years older than I am, Mm. and also by other members of the family. So I was actually very rarely with non-family members. There was a very brief period in which I was living out of suitcases in different people's houses. Mm. I was at boarding school, and I spent the holidays in different people's houses. Um, And... I remember the kind of this kind of longing that I had for a place where I could unpack all my things and put my posters on the wall, put my Duran Duran poster up on the wall. Mm. Because at boarding school, we weren't allowed to put any posters up or personalize our dorm room space in any way. It was, you know, everything was done with a kind of military sort of uniformity mm. at my school. And I really longed to have a bedroom. And I think that was a kind of proxy in my mind for also wanting that kind of emotional stability. But I didn't really um, see it at the time in that way. Um, I didn't, there was no adult in my life who I would have willingly hugged or, you know, who I missed when they were away or who I felt that I loved or would have confided in Hmm. um and uh so i think it was quite an emotionally deprived um childhood in that sense yeah um and i certainly could relate to so i could relate in a small way to some aspects of your story um even though i don't want to downplay how how much more serious um the things that happened to you no 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 no, not at all i mean i I, yeah i totally understand what you're saying i mean this that you know unwillingness or i i don't know just that sort of like withholding um well i don't know if that's exactly what you were getting out here with this you know not not uh, hugging an adult or not feeling that i mean that was something that i i went through so my at least the way that i had experienced it was this um I guess this unwillingness over time to grow close with people, um, especially, you know, once I had experienced the sort of um, the aftermath of my mother's partner being shot and, you know, it was like, you know, I'd finally had this adult in my life. And then once, once that was sort of nearly taken and, and in some ways, I mean, she was never really the same after that, that, um, yeah, I like a, a part of me had completely kind of closed off and, I mean, I could like, as an example, you know, you, you asked before, like, in what ways that it affected me as an adult. I mean, my, so my girlfriend, I've been with her for a few years now, but I remember like a few months into when we started dating, she grew very serious one day and she asked me, you know, can I ask you something? And I said, uh, yeah, sure. And she said, like, how come you never smile uh, when you see me? And I thought about that for a second. I'm like, is, is that true? I never smile. And she's like, I mean, you do sometimes, but like, you know, when I see you after like a long trip or like, you know, at the end of the day or something like that, like you're, you, you never smile. And that's something that I had never you know, thought about, but I, I, you know, after, you know, upon reflection, I, I wonder if that's just, you know, this sort of, um, you know, that seriousness or that's, you know, this kind of somber mood that I carry with me, even, even around loved ones, or maybe especially around, uh, loved ones that, um, 
you know, that, that I don't even realize and, you know, tried to be better about it since then. But that was just, um, one example that stood out to me because, um, you know, it was, I, I was completely ignorant of it and, and she had to point it out to me. Mm, yeah. So one way in which I think, um, we had some odd similarities is that, uh, during during my difficult the difficult period of my childhood, um, when I was fostered by my sister in long term foster care with my sister, and um, I didn't really feel any connection any close connection to almost anyone. Hmm. Um, I had one friend of my own age um, to whom I'm still with whom I'm still close, but she was at a different boarding school from me, and we only saw each other occasionally, but. During that long, lonely period, I remember feeling that the thing that was going to save me was going to Cambridge. <laughs> so hmm. my entire, I actually, I didn't consciously feel all that unhappy. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to relate to it if somebody had said I was unhappy because I just felt, well, this period will pass and then I will go to Cambridge. I will become a blue stocking. I will hmm. read books and have many dogs and I will never have a boyfriend, but I will be happy for the rest of my life. Hmm. The end. Um, it didn't quite work out like that, but I did feel when I arrived at Cambridge, it was like a, uh, it felt like an absolute idyll to me. Um, and I felt as though it was, um, I, I, I felt as though I had, I was um, finally among people who understood me. And um, it was a real kind of emotional and intellectual just flowering. And your experience of of, um, of college was rather different from that. Mm. Um, so could you tell us a bit about your college aspirations and then also about what happened when you finally arrived at, at Yale? Uh, yeah, so... While I was in the military, I was also sort of, as as my enlistment was coming to an end, I also had this feeling of like, well, I'm not going to stay here. I need to figure out what I'm going to do next. And by that point, I think I had reached um, a level of maturity and thoughtfulness and seriousness that I felt ready that I could, you know, I could go to college. That that was something that I had always sort of that was a hope that had always existed for me, and. So, yeah, I mean, I, I ended up going to Yale. That was, you know, well, p part of the reason why how I ended up there was um, I, I cold emailed um, someone at the Yale Veterans Association. This was when I was still enlisted. You know, I was thinking about which colleges to apply to. I cold emailed someone from there, um, figuring, you know, this, may, maybe someone there could, could give me some tips or some idea of, of what to do because I, I was completely in the dark. I didn't know how to apply to college or anything. Um, you know, my parents didn't go, I just had no, like, you know, so I, uh, received a response and someone there just sort of directed me to this program called the Warrior Scholar Project, which was this program held at various universities, uh, designed to sort of help, you know, military veterans apply to college, get in, sort of understand how to be a college student, this sort of academic boot camp. Um, and so I went, uh, it was held at Yale and then while I was there, I just um, fell in love with the campus and the people, the staff that were involved. And so I thought, like, you know, maybe I'll apply here. Uh, and I did. And I was surprised that I actually got in uh, to be you know, a full time student. And, you know, it was uh, it was a very much a culture shock for me. Um, 
you know, coming from where I came from and, you know, yeah, it was, it, it sounds like it was quite a bit different from, from your experience. I, at first, um, I thought like, okay, this, I could, I could probably make a go of it. I, I felt like I could, you know, I just felt like, um, you know, I could manage, I could integrate somehow the first few weeks while I was on campus. Um, I was doing okay in my studies and I was making, you know, some friends and I was a little bit older, uh, than, than the students there. So I was 25 my first year, uh, of college and the, you know, everyone around me was, you know, in their you know, late teens, early twenties. Um, and that's, that was also something that was, that was interesting for me because I had gone to uh, night classes at a community college, uh, in the U is this in the U S uh, yeah, like sort of on and off, I was going to these like night classes and, you know, community college and a lot of, um, you know, just sort of state schools or sort of non-selective universities, you have like a much larger range of age groups and backgrounds and everything. It's not uncommon to see, you know, like a 45-year-old, a you know, woman or something or man or whatever, just sort of return to, to, to college after, you know, after, in their later years. But at a place like Yale, it was, uh, and Cambridge too, I mean, the students are almost uniformly between you know whatever 18 to 22 the undergrads and that was a shock for me because it, it was just uh very little diversity in terms <laughs> of the age uh and then of course very little diversity in terms of uh, socioeconomic status i mean the vast majority of students are from the you know, top quintile if not the top decile uh, of income in the u.s so so i was struggling and then um <laughs> i i tried to get into this course my first semester it was called the concept of the problem child uh and it was um you know the, the name alone intrigued me and the course description was sort of you know just um you know what what is this idea of the problem child in in sort of the u.s historical and cultural context and you know discussions of foster care and you know orphaning and all of this stuff it just looked really interesting to me and so i visited the uh class and tried to apply to get in but because it was i was a first year student and all the other students were trying to get in where many of them were were seniors fourth year students um the instructor uh, waitlisted me. But then I never got to take that course. She told me, you know, I'll waitlist you. The next time you apply, I'll make sure you get a seat. And then this, the course was never offered again because it was being taught by Erica Christakis. Um, who, oh, why? Yeah. How, how ironic. Yes. Uh, so, you know, she she was very kind. You know, she said, oh, yeah, let, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you get a seat next time. And then it was never offered. So, yeah, she became the target of all of that uh, vitriol from the student protests and all of the sort of just the eruption that had occurred in the aftermath of her email was uh, very disturbing to me. Uh, I didn't um, understand just, it. Just summarize that a little bit for, for listeners in case there's anyone who doesn't, isn't familiar with that event. Yeah. So um, a couple of weeks before Halloween 2015, uh, the Yale administration sent out a campus-wide email basically saying, you know, be careful what you wear for Halloween, you know, be sensitive, uh, you know, be mindful of culture and all this stuff. Just, you know, be careful what you wear on Halloween. And then uh, Erica Christakis, who was the associate master of Silliman College at the time, and her husband, uh, Nicholas Christakis, was the master of the college. I think they call them something else now, but at that point they were called master and associate master. Uh, she sent out an email to her residential college. So just her college, uh, you know, students saying, you know, basically challenging some of the details of that administration email saying, 
you know, basically defending freedom of expression and saying, you know, I know that if you wear a costume that's inoffensive, it can be hurtful, but, you know, you should talk to each other. You're all adults. You know, do we need the administration interfering in our lives for something like Halloween? And this, I mean, the uproar of this was just unreal, especially to me now. I mean, at least, or, or at least, so now I can sort of understand a little bit back then it was, it was much more, uh, just uh, bewildering to me uh, because I just didn't have like the cultural awareness or the background knowledge of like the war that was being waged in universities and all of the uh, conversations around freedom of speech and all that stuff. It was just completely foreign to me. Um, So seeing these students calling her a racist was just like, what is going on here? Like what? I read that email five or six times and could not identify what was racist about it. Um, and yeah, I ended up losing friends over that, uh, not even necessarily for a, like disagreeing with them, but just asking questions about like, well, like, what's racist about this? Like, I don't see anything or saying like, I don't see anything racist. Can you help me to understand? And just, you know, uh, radio silence in response. And um, so that was really hard for me. And so gradually, I mean, throughout my experiences, the next few years, uh, so my firsthand experiences, in addition to some of the books and research that I was reading uh both for my uh, formal academic studies, but also out of my own sort of interest and curiosity uh, in this new environment that I found myself in. um, I I came up with some like different ways to understand what was going on uh, in higher ed. And I, yeah, it it was, um, it was really just for me at first to help me to understand it. And later I ended up writing about it and was surprised to see that other, like it it was helping other people too, to, to understand as well. So you, you, uh, that was when you um, first came up with the concept of luxury beliefs. Is that uh, right? Yeah, the term was lingering in the back of my mind, and I didn't. I don't think I really wrote anything public about it until 2019. But in yeah, 2015 was when I first got the sort of inkling for the idea, um, and started taking notes, like personal notes about it. Um, and yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it it was uh, it was really yeah it was really a private thing for me. I didn't really talk about it with my friends even or other students or any of this. It was like me sort of like quietly thinking and writing and trying to pay attention to what I was seeing going on around me. And then I would ask my like questions. I would ask questions of my you know friends from uh, the military or back you know my high school friends. I talked to my mom, and I would describe what I was seeing. And people were just as confused as I was. And so I thought like, okay, so it's not just me. This seems to be like a, a cultural difference here. And yeah, that was sort of the the beginning, the origins of, of my luxury beliefs idea. Um, can you define for, for listeners what mm. you consider to be, what characterizes a, a luxury belief? You also call them at, um, conspicuous convictions, which I think is is a wonderful term too. Yeah, uh, luxury beliefs I define as ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while often inflicting costs on the lower classes. And you know, there I can I can give examples. We can go into examples, but I mean, I built this idea sort of based on, of course, my firsthand observations, but then also. Um, inspired by classic texts by you know, like theory of the leisure class by Thorsten Veblen, who, you know, he was 
writing about the uh, the upper class and the aristocracy from the late 19th and early 20th centuries and writing about how they would display their status with their mostly with their material goods and with their hobbies, you know, expensive tuxedos and evening gowns and, you know, uh, beagling and golf and all this stuff. If, you know, he sort of took this semi satirical uh, tone when describing the these people saying, you know, oh, this is like a lot of this is for sort of social and status reasons, concerns about their self, you know, their esteem, their public esteem. Um, Pierre Bourdieu, who was a, a French sociologist in the mid 20th century, wrote sort of something similar about this, um, about how uh, social class goes beyond just uh, money, but also sort of culture, tastes and habits and worldview, conversational styles opinions, all of those things. Um, and yeah, I, if there's, yeah, there's a bunch of different sort of cultural quirks that I noticed. I mean, one, I, I was uh, repeatedly kind of, uh, um, I guess embarrassed would be the right word. I think it's a little too strong, but something like that when, um, you know, at least my first year, especially students would ask me, I mean, it's funny now because like now I write about this and all this, but like back then, uh, students would ask me about like, oh, did you read this article or this op-ed or, you know, whatever sort of fashionable trending piece of news was going on, either sort of in the media at large, like legacy media or on Twitter or what have you. And I wasn't really uh, plugged into any of that. Uh, and so I would say like, oh, no, what's going on? And people would look at me like I was an alien, like, oh, have you not read, you know, what's going on with this latest thing in, you know, the Atlantic or whatever. And, uh, and I gradually understood that like, oh, like part of part of the membership of this group is to like read, uh, you know, these articles and these opinion pieces and sort of keep up with the latest language and the lingo and whatever topics we're supposed to care about right now. And even if you don't read them, you should at least like have some, some cursory familiarity with it. And up until then I had never really read any news on a regular basis. Um, yeah, my my mom and her partner, you know, they subscribed when I was a kid, they subscribed to the Red Bluff Daily News, which is like the local newspaper. And so I'd go out and like pick up the paper from the driveway and bring it in. And like that was the news. We couldn't afford cable. We didn't read any of like the bigger, more prominent periodicals. Um, it was just sort of local news stuff. And yeah, growing up and then later on, I just never really uh, was interested in it. And that this is actually there's some research on this too that's sort of more educated more affluent people spend much more time consuming media um and yeah that was like it was sort of one cultural uh difference sorry it's like a tangent but so anyway um the luxury beliefs idea also was based on some psychological research that i had um discovered basically showing that uh, the people who care the most about obtaining wealth and status are the people who already uh have high amounts of it so you know there's sort of these direct associations between um having wealth and the desire for more wealth and having status and the desire for more status which to me was kind of counterintuitive because i i think i would have predicted before that actually you know oh, if you who wants wealth and status the most i would have thought well maybe probably like poor people low-income people who don't really have much um they would be the most uh, have the strongest desire for it but it's actually not true and that helped me to understand the intense status anxiety that i was seeing uh at yale at the time um and at Stanford too, I did a, a summer internship at the Department of Psychology in Stanford, but it was not really any different there. You know, this there was just this um, overwhelming preoccupation with uh, achievement and accomplishment, and trying to get that next internship or getting to medical school or law school or whatever. And I, I was just uh, shocked by all of this, just how this sort of uh, 
low level anxiety and stress uh, uh, seem to hang over so many of the students. Um, so yeah, those are all the sort of pieces there, the sort of uh, desire for status and um, uh, the sort of historical examples of, of the upper classes really wanting to stand out and yeah. Yeah, I noticed. So this isn't exactly the, the exactly the line you take, but there are some similarities. I I notice with things like um, concerns about cultural appropriation, which mm. I think you say um, if you say the phrase culture, if you're concerned about cultural appropriation, what you're really doing is signaling that you went to an elite college. And I'm not quoting you exactly, but uh, something like that. But I notice with things like, uh, with concerns like cultural appropriation, also hysteria over people having said the N word, hmm. um, you know, not used, called someone the N word, but having, um, you know, used it in a linguistics lecture or reading from Huckleberry Finn or quoting a play or something. Um, this kind of his- hysteria about people having, um, said the wrong words use the wrong terminology, um, use the politically incorrect term to refer to somebody or some phenomenon, or um, having uh, eaten the wrong food or worn the wrong outfits for their supposed ethnicity. Hmm. These kinds of um, sort of racial sumptuary laws um, that Hmm. we see with people who are concerned about cultural appropriation. Hmm. All that stuff seems like it's pitting... um, very um, exacting, very concrete penalties, especially from people who have very little, for very frivolous and abstract, um, to my mind, very frivolous and abstract um, transgressions. So, you know, like the, I'm, I'm thinking of, for example, the electrician um, who got fired from his job for allegedly making the okay signal with his hand um, out of the out of the window of his truck, this is one of perhaps the most extreme examples of this phenomenon. Hmm. But it's like if you're a person who already has a certain economic stability, you can afford to care about those kinds of things, and you can actually. Come to see those things, those gestural and symbolic things, as m- more important than the the ability to make a living and and um, have a have a reasonable life, and therefore you can call for people to be fired for those transgressions. It seems very like like a like kind of um, courtly taboos being. Uh, being imposed upon the plebs. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's a great example with the, uh, the electrician. I mean, that to me is why, you know, there, there are these sort of the critics of the critics of the critics of cancel culture who say, Oh, you know, no one gets canceled, you know, or, or the people who quote unquote do get canceled, they end up doing better and they're, you know, get, they get more book sales, they get more attention. So no one's ever really canceled, but they never, uh, point out the examples like you're describing here, of people who are not making their living on their laptops, uh, those people are not going to make a career pivot to climb the Substack leaderboard or you know start a, a YouTube channel or something. I mean, people who've sort of trained for more blue collar work who don't really want to or have any interest in uh, you know cr- starting a creating a media personality or something. It, this is you know these are the people who we don't see who are getting fired or 
penalized in some way for violating what like the ever-changing norms of the chattering classes it's uh i mean it's really uh it's it's classist in a way that that i i don't think a lot of people understand especially the people who are um who have very little interaction with people outside of, of their um social milieus who you know who've never had a 10 minute conversation with someone who didn't attend a university and mm. I, I have to say i think that even I've certainly had 10-minute conversations, but my social milieu, certainly here in the UK, is very, very kind of culturally and educationally middle class. Mm. Um, Not middle class in terms of income, because a lot of my friends, um, because uh, many of my friends are professional musicians and dancers and things, and they earn hardly anything. Mm. And And some of them are really actually really struggling financially but um i certainly my milieu is the kind of middle class people who are intra- who who would um who would you know write a substack or start a podcast and um who do um listen to radio 4 and read the guardian things but i don't think it's even necessary to have um, exposure to other types of people to be able to empathize and understand that they're out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that you, you know, you, it's impossible to to empathize or or try to understand people who, you know, you don't see every day. But I do think it would help. Um, mm. And yeah, I think that it's it's easier at least to be callous towards people who you have little contact with and. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I think that th- that's probably contributing to some degree to the the polarization that we're seeing. Um, and I mean, I, I know a lot of people focus on the political polarization, but I, I do think that a lot of this is um, at least as much sort of class based. I mean, part of this is you know, it, I I so my mother and you know a lot of the people that I grew up around, they're you know they're working class Democrats. Um, and the way that they speak and the way that they, you know, their conversational styles, I mean, they they would make uh, college educated conservatives uncomfortable, you know, making uh, sweeping generalizations based on ethnicity or gender stereotypes or all of this stuff. The way that people who, um, you know, even though they vote for, you know, Democrats or left wing sort of economic policies or something like in their in their everyday habits and, you know, uh, opinions and so on. I mean, they're, they would, they would immediately get, you know, canceled or, or socially ostracized by, by a lot of, uh, the members of the sort of middle and upper classes. Yeah. I mean, even the people who I know, um, who are quite woke, quote unquote, um, in my real life would definitely be canceled if the conversations they have in private, where they're just, uh, you know, in normal casual conversation, you can be just spitballing, trying out ideas, thinking aloud, making jokes that are a bit off color, kind of trying things on for size, you know? If those things were tweeted out, almost all of them would be completely canceled, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, no, I get it. I remember when I was seeing what was happening in uh, in my first year of college and and yeah, I mean, starting to see people get in trouble for social media posts. I went through my Facebook page, you know, that was back when, you know, people still used Facebook or young people were still, you know, and so I was like, going through my like, really early posts, you know, it was 
you know, 20 years old, deployed in like, you know, 2010 or something. And yeah, it was like, you know, quoting rap lyrics or making stupid jokes or whatever. And like, I know that if someone pulled that up today, I'd get in a lot of trouble. Uh, and so, yeah, I just deleted all of that because I was sensing that something like this was about to happen. And at the time, it was, it was already starting to happen. But now it's just gotten completely out of hand where, yeah, people are, are getting um, into hot water for things they've said years ago. Um, and back when things were still OK to say. So this is another interesting thing to me is what are we saying now that in five years will be uh, a punishable offense? Things that are per- perfectly OK. Uh, as as we stand in February 2022, might be um, you know taboo uh, in in the next few years. I was um, I think we need some more examples of of what you see you personally see as luxury beliefs. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so one that I've highlighted is this widespread sort of non judgmental attitude that all family structures are the same and that, you know, there's, there's no, none of them are, are any better than the other. And I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, it's just not true in, in terms of sort of the, the studies, the research. Um, I came upon this idea of, you know, this sort of non-judgmental, all families are the same attitude, uh, as a luxury belief. I, I was in a class, um, at Yale, and the professor administered this uh, anonymous survey to the students. And she asked us something like, um, you know, were you raised by both of your birth parents? Yes or no? And uh, something like 90% of the students said yes. Uh, And that just completely stunned me because you know, 90% of the students here, but then if I if I look at my friends from high school, uh, it was it was zero. None of us. I had five close friends uh, in high school, and none of us were raised by both of our birth parents. Um, and that's like, I mean, then then I started to dig into the data and saw that there was this massive divergence between um, people who had been people who had four year uh, college degrees versus people who didn't, and seeing you know just how how uh, how large that divergence was. Um, so in 1960, for example, in the U.S., uh, uh, about 95% of the children born into um, affluent families uh, were raised by both of their uh, birth parents. And this was also true for working class uh, kids. So kids born into working class families, 95% were raised by both of their birth parents. And then by 2005, for the upper class, it had dropped somewhat to 85%. So it was 95% and it dropped slightly to 85%. But for working class uh, families, uh, it was 95% and plummeted to 30%. And that more or less matched what I was seeing. Um, I don't even know if 30%, I mean, that's, you know, one out of three, I can't even think of that many where I grew up. So to me, it's just not a coincidence that, you know, vast majority of my peers, um, who attend places like Yale or Cambridge, uh, you know, they, they were raised in this sort of stable environment. They had two parents, they were looked after, uh, and yet when you ask him about this, you know, they'll say like, oh, you know, you shouldn't uh, judge single parents or, you know, alternate family arrangements or what have you. I have written about this, you know, this exchange I had with a former classmate of mine who uh, told me that she thought monogamy and marriage were outdated um, and they were like these patriarchal 
oppressive institution that you know it, it needed to be we sort of needed to move beyond them but then i asked her how she was raised herself and she you know unsurprisingly she was raised by both of her birth parents you know her family and she had a sort of stable family and then i asked her well how do you plan to you know live your life later and she said you know i'll probably find a, a you know a husband or a partner settle down have kids and and then i asked her well why would you know, then why are you saying that marriage is outdated if you're going to get married? And she said like, yeah, I know, like, that's what I want to do, but I don't think it should have to be for everyone. And, you know, to me, this sort of, you know, duplicity of, you know, broadcasting this belief that this thing is harmful or outdated, or we should move beyond it while personally in your private life practicing it. Um, you know, to me, it was, it was sort of like, uh, you know, someone once made this analogy to me of like, you know, imagine very affluent people saying, uh, you know, oh, I have this medicine, and statistically, it'll improve the lives of your children uh, if if you you know if you give it to your family or you give it to them. Um, but you know, I'm I'm going to make sure that me and my children take it. But you guys shouldn't have to take it. You know, we should move beyond this. You know, we don't need this medicine. Uh, but then, you know, privately insuring me to. And so, um, and actually, I think like some people have challenged me on this about uh, whether anti-vaxxing is a, is a kind of a luxury belief. Uh, at least, at least when it comes to sort of the more uh, uh, affluent and, and sort of socially prominent uh, anti-vax people who can afford um, medical care and so forth, if they if they become sick, um, but they're well, I've actually seen people who who do get vaccinated, but then who publicly say, "Oh, but you shouldn't have to take it." And this is something I'm conflicted about. But I, ultimately, I think I would have to settle on that being a, a luxury belief as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there. Are, I mean, those are a couple of examples there. Another one that I that I've recently been thinking about is um, this downplaying of hard work. Um, you know, often when you ask uh, people who attend elite universities, you know. Uh, or you congratulate them or say, you know, compliment them in some way, they downplay it, or they say they just got lucky, or, you know, there's this uh, absence of this belief in agency, uh, which I think is is detrimental. Um, if you attend an elite university, you can say it was all luck, that's fine. Um, but I've had these conversations with people, you know, I remember I had this conversation with this guy at Stanford, who, you know, he got into Stanford, and then he was starting a company. And, I asked him, you know, like, how did you, you know, how did you manage to get into this college? And how did you, you know, what, what steps are you taking for your company and all this stuff? And he was like, ah, you know, ultimately it really just comes down to luck. You know, it's a luck of the draw. It's just luck. And I knew that he had had a, he, he has a younger sister. Um, and, uh, so I asked him, you know, what if your younger sister, uh, asked you, um, Hey, how do I get into Stanford? How do I start a company? Are you just going to shrug your shoulders and say, ah, it's just, you know, it's just luck. You know, you don't have to worry about it. Just luck. Or would you be like, you know, no, you got to study, you got to work weekends, you have to sacrifice, you have to work hard, you know, it's going to be stressful and, you know, so on. And he was like, oh yeah, okay. And he, he sort of got it, but that was like, that was an interesting, um, uh, for me, like I used that, that, like, that was sort of the, the, the inkling that I had for this idea of, of this downplaying of hard work. It's like, okay, so these people will work hard themselves. They'll tell their children uh, the work that's necessary, the sacrifice that's necessary to excel. But then publicly they'll say like, oh, you know, it's all just sort of luck and social forces and, you know, there are systemic barriers. And it seems like this kind of, they they try to demoralize everyone else, but then privately will continue to, uh, you know, put their nose to the grindstone. I I do I definitely agree with you. Although I think there is a flip side to this, Mm. which is there are um, a lot of 
are very wealthy and successful people who refuse to admit how much of a role luck played in their success. Mm-hmm. Because you can uh, work very hard at, for example, creating a startup, um, and your startup can nevertheless fail because of just, um, you know, completely unpredictable market forces. Because it's very hard to predict what people are going to be into, what they're going to respond to at any uh, one moment, what the latest next craze is going to be. And most small companies do fail. And so um, you get a lot of kind of memoirs and also videos on YouTube, which are, here's how how to make your company successful. And you need to get up at 5.30 and do yoga and drink green tea and only wear uh, black Polonex um, to eliminate decision fatigue when you are getting dressed, hmm. as if that's an actual thing. You know, oh, it's, like I'm going to write this down: black Polonex for my own tips. <laughs> you know, for my own. Yeah. Um, I'm giving you invaluable information yes, here, Rob. Very good. But um, hmm. either they are not acknowledging that you know their idea happened to succeed, where a thousand equally good ideas. Um, it didn't succeed mm-hmm. just out of the arbitrary luck of the draw. And also many of them aren't acknowledging how much a financial help they had from parents and family and things. Yeah. Yeah. So, good point. I mean, I've... I think there's, yeah, there's pushback about, uh, about that. There's kind of, everybody wants to be seen as the hero of their own story. Mm. And so they want to kind of portray or there has been, there's an, a tradition that is the opposite of the of the kind of custom that you are talking about. The opposite also exists. The people who just want to show themselves as having been destined for success or having earned that success through their own grit or their their habits or their intelligence, etc. Um, and in fact, that's just a kind of post hoc justification. Yeah, you know, the black turtlenecks had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I get what you mean. I mean, I think in in specific cases, I mean any any business, I mean the odds are astronomically against it. And so, yeah, I think we it's important to 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 acknowledge the role that luck plays. I mean, randomness plays a role in in every aspect of our lives. Yeah, um, yeah. and so I think it's you know. Hard work will not guarantee the success of any particular company, but I think that emphasizing it overall, um, I think so. So, a hardworking person may not succeed in any particular venture, but odds are, in the long run, whatever they end up doing, uh, they will sort of be they'll, they'll have a more positive outcome than someone who shrugs their shoulders and thinks that everything is due to luck. Um, yeah, um, I'm. I think that's likely to be true. And I also think that it's important for your, it's really crucial to one's self-esteem that if you have failed, but you knew that you put in the work, Mm -hmm. um, then you will just feel better about yourself than if you know that you've been lazing around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I look back and think, you know, if someone had, if I had said, you know, oh, I want to, you know, go to university or I want to, you know, be you know successful in some way and someone had told me you know oh you know it's just you know just luck 
or it's just, um, you know, the system is working against you. So anything that you try, the odds just aren't going to work out for you. You know, only 3% of foster kids graduate from college. So, you know, 97% chance of failure. Like, you know, I, I think that if someone had, had set me down and told me that and tried to like, you know, I, I, I don't know what I, how I would have responded to that. I, I think it's, it's possible um, that, you know, it, it, it could have weighed me down in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. versus if someone had framed it in a different way and said like, look, yeah, the odds might be against you, but if you work really hard and put your mind to it and so on, then you'll have a better shot. I think that might be a better, you know, a better way to, to, to like better guidance, uh, for, for people, especially in disadvantaged, um, circumstances. Um, you know, we, I think once you're successful, you know, it's, it's, you can talk about work or luck or whatever it is, but, uh, when it comes to giving, giving guidance to people, I mean, I, I think it really is about like, well, what do you tell your kids? And I think, uh, you know, rich, successful people, regardless of what they attribute their own success to, whether luck or hard work, they're still going to tell their own children, you got to work hard. Mm, yeah. I was thinking about when you were talking about, um, the, uh, stable two parent family being the ideal and the kind of pushback against that as an ideal because to hold that up as an ideal is to, is to discriminate against or denigrate, for example, single mothers or blended families or amicably divorced parents or whatever. Um, there seems to me to be a parallel confusion there with the confusion um, around um, weight and fatness um, that there's a kind of idea that if you don't, if you acknowledge the kind of obvious truth that being at um, within a healthy um, weight range is the optimum, hmm. that you are therefore denigrating fat people or being fat phobic. Hmm. And I think I can kind of understand, I can understand where people are coming from when they think that. Um, and But it is a confusion between holding up an ideal and also just um, respecting people for whatever they have achieved. And also, you know, these are ideals and we can't all hit all of the ideals. And sometimes we won't be able to achieve those ideals for reasons beyond our control, um, both with regard to weight um, and also with regard to family structures. And I do think that there's Stability has to mean, um, has to also include, when you say a stable, um, two, two parent household, that's, that's something that can be easily statistically measured. Um, but I think that it's vital that there is also, it's also a happy, stable two person household. Because I certainly know from um, Indian friends um, that in India, where I think it's still 97% of people who get married um, go into arranged marriages. Hmm. It's a startlingly high percentage even today. And there is a, um, and there are very few divorces. So there's a lot of stability. But Within the arranged marriages, there's also a lot of unhappiness and there's a lot of abuse, particularly of women, because it's so difficult to exit the situation. Mm. And in my own fa- family, um, my two cousins grew up with their, um, their father was 
a verbally abusive alcoholic who would come home drunk and shout at them and tell them they were fat and ugly and things. And they actually begged their mother to get divorced. And their lives were so greatly improved after uh, their father um, finally left and they were brought up, um, being brought up by their mother on her own. So I think that it does, stability is important, but it's not everything. And if stability implies a situation that is unchanging, that isn't likely to change readily, that's only good if the situation is already a, a good situation, a desirable situation. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, stability in a miserable situation is kind of imprisonment, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Prison is also a very stable place to be. Yeah. Um, maximum security prison for 20 years. That's a very stable situation. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I understand. I mean, I've, I've, uh, you know, I, I get it. And it's, uh, there will, I mean, re- whatever sort of social arrangement, uh, prevails there will always be challenges within them and you know i mean again like my sort of my my opinions have been informed you know of course by my own experiences and you know sort of seeing like friends growing up who you know were raised by like single moms who had a different boyfriend in the house every week and some of those boyfriends were not always so kind to mm-hmm. you know her yeah. children you know, the, the woman's children and the children not understanding like why there was a different guy around and who they could trust around them. And so, you know, things like that. And, you know, then, then sort of zooming out and looking at the, the statistics of this, I mean, kids who are raised in, you know, single parent homes or, you know, sort of alternate family arrangements are, you know, much more likely to be abused physically or emotionally, sexually, and so on. And, so yeah, I mean, of course, uh, you know, even if every, you know, if every, um, that's not to say that, uh, if everyone had, you know, two parent family that, you know, all of that stuff would be erased and, you know, but, but again, like I think, um, in the aggregate, it would probably be, you know, if it was, if it was encouraged more than a lot of this could be, could be mitigated. I mean, in the same way that, you know, I don't know, like, seatbelts in the aggregate are probably a good thing, but there are always going to be cases where, you know, even if every single person wears a seatbelt, there will be these cases where people are sort of trapped in an accident and they can't escape the scene and they end up dying because of that. And so, yeah, there's, um, there's definitely no sort of uh, one size fits all in every case solution. But I think uh, for the vast majority of people, if, you know, if, if there's not sort of this overt abuse or violence or, or, you know, extreme unhappiness that, um, you know, if there are kids involved, it's probably better to, to prioritize their well-being. Yeah, I, I do agree. But I think this is only, there's a fine line between encouragement and um, kind of so, a social coercion. Hmm. If it becomes really taboo to leave your husband then that is a situation that is ripe for spousal abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the Indian situation is definitely not the ideal, um, as far as I'm concerned, either. That's the opposite pole. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we would hope that for most people to be able to be in stable relationships, um, but without any kind of strong coercion mm. or, you know, uh, without any societal punishments for those who aren't, because you also don't want to be trapped in a relationship that you don't want to be in with no real options. Hmm. Yeah. 
there's got to be an escape. Escape route needs to be, the escape route needs to be there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't advocate for you know people to stay in you know abusive or harmful relationships. Um, but yeah, I mean, for for the relationships that that uh, do form and you know just uh, in the aggregate, um, it looks like. Um, you know, certain forms of family structures tend to have better outcomes for everyone than others. And, you know, based on that, it may be, you know, I, I think people, people could make more informed decisions based on that too. So Rob, you talked about your, the kind of the culture shock of, of going to university in Yale. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, um, have you noticed differences between the atmosphere in the US and in the UK? With regard to wokeness, to luxury beliefs, um, to and also to university culture, one thing actually that occurred to me as we were talking, you talk about the trickle down effect with luxury beliefs. So at first, um, the upper classes, um, the upper classes are espousing a certain opinion, and then that opinion gets taken up by people lower down the social ladder and once the plebs start once it becomes popular among the plebs um the cognoscenti start abandoning it because it's no longer kind of cool mm-hmm. and i do wonder in a sense whether the uk conservative parties embrace of a lot of the kind of woke stuff uh will help to make wokery uncool <laughs> and um <laughs> be the kind of death knell because there's nothing more uncool than a Tory politician? Well, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, what I think is going to happen is that I think I, I tweeted about this a couple of days ago. Uh, I, I made this analogy to, to atheism. So atheism as a social trend was really hot in like the late two thousands and early 2010s. Um, and then at a certain point it became kind of like, uh, what like uh, uh passe you know then like the fedora uh man memes came out and all this and th- then it suddenly became like not so cool to just like constantly debate about you know the existence of god and all the other stuff that goes along with you know that the the, the trend that was fashionable at the time um but uh the people who latched onto that movement and so on like they're still atheists um they just don't talk about it they're just not as vocal about it and i think that's probably what's going to happen with um you know, wokeness or social justice. Um, you know, I think like the term woke itself has pretty much fallen out of favor mm. with the, um, you know, the, the, the sort of like fashionable, like leading edge, uh, you know, the vanguard of, of social movements and the people who care about, you know, being cool, the sort of uh, trendsetters. So, I mean, I think part of that was like, yeah, I mean, the woke sort of took off and then went into mainstream media. And then, you, you know, Sean Hannity's talking about wokeness to the to the plebs. And now it's like, oh, wokeness is this, you know, no one says that anymore. Um, I think that's happening now with with the term cancel culture. Now it's become like two years ago, it was hot and people were talking about it or, or, or debating its existence. And now even the term itself has fallen out of favor. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, people are still going to have s- the beliefs but it's going to morph into different forms. There's going to be new terms that evolve and arise out of it. That, um, yeah, I think it's, I, I think that the sort of underlying ideology is probably not going to go anywhere. It'll just sort of mutate and take on different forms and, and new, a new lexicon will, will emerge. 
So have you noticed a difference between um, UK mm. and US universities? Um, yeah. Uh, well, let's see. I mean, it's, it's it's sort of different, right? So, you, I mean, you're aware of like the difference between undergrad and, and PhD life, especially yes. during a pandemic. I mean, like... Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So PhD is already like kind of an isolating experience. Um you know, it, under the best of circumstances, you're kind of like, you know, it's 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 a more lonesome existence than than undergrad when you're sort of forced to be social. Um, but then, you know, during the pandemic, it's even more so. So I can't really say that it's been. Uh, I, I can't point out like specific differences, or I'm not sure. I, I mean, one thing I will say is that part of the reason why I came to Cambridge was because of the shock that I had experienced at Yale. Uh, and, and everything that was going on in the country at the time, I mean, alongside the whole, you know, eruptions that were going on at, at my school, it was also happening at other colleges as well. So I thought maybe if I go to the U- UK, um, things will be a little different. Um, I'll get away from all this like crazy American culture war stuff. And, you know, I, I had this image in my mind. <laughs> no, I, well, I, I had this image in my mind of like these sort of like very proper Brits who are like, like too good or like too like sophisticated or just like sort of above all of the, you know, American, you know, all the contentious stuff that was going on. Uh, And then I get here and then, yeah, within a matter of months, um, a couple of things happened. So one was uh, Jordan Peterson was supposed to be a guest research fellow in the Divinity School. And then, yeah, these activists came out and, you know, signed a petition and all this stuff and got him disinvited. And that was pretty disappointing. And then uh, a friend of mine, Noah Carl, was fired from his, I think he was a postdoc uh, at St. Edmunds College. And so like back to back episodes like that within, I'd say about six, seven months of my arrival. And I'm like, what is going on here? Like, this is happening here, too. Like, what is like, I thought Cambridge would like, you know, these schools are a thousand years old. How can you guys be falling for this crazy stuff that's going on in America? Um, And uh, so, yeah, I mean deplatforming and disinvitations and activism it's it's not quite as overt and obnoxious as it is in the ivy league schools in the u.s but it's still here it's has like a you know a pretty um pretty strong presence but there's there's not as many sort of demonstrations and uh sit-ins and um harassment of faculty but definitely uh you know the the sort of underlying currents seem to be very similar oh. Bloody Americans, go away. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I'll go back soon. No, Rob, <laughs> don't go. <laughs> um, is there anything that you have hoped that I would ask you in the course of this interview that I haven't asked you or that you want to say that I haven't given you an opportunity to say? Uh, oh, uh, we were, um, let's see. Yeah, we were briefly going to talk about um, the piece I wrote in Unheard about elite university admissions and um, sort of like adversity narratives. Oh, yes. Um, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, this is how we... Uh, encountered each other on Twitter because um, of the student, I forget her name, uh, mm. Fierstein? Uh, Mackenzie Fierstein. Mackenzie Fierstein, who lied about her, who seems to have lied or perhaps just slight, somewhat massaged, put a little <laughs> bit of essential oil on and massaged mm. the truth mm-hmm. um, about her background in order to count as a student who had had a um, a background had 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 
um, a hard, a difficult childhood. And I think she said she was the first member of her family to go to university. And this was technically true because Yale doesn't consider... It was um, University of Pennsylvania. Your, oh, Pennsylvania. It doesn't yeah. consider um, your... Div- if your parents are divorced, then it doesn't consider the divorced parent you still live with to be family for the purposes of family who have been to university or some absolutely absurd casuistical thing like that. Mm. <laughs> and she had yeah. kind of creatively, pro- probably creatively retold her story to to emphasize the hardship. And I I feel that although it's, there is something especially noble in someone who has triumphed over hardship. And I think that could be taken into account. But having just experienced hardship and trauma in itself doesn't seem to me to be either ennobling or something that would particularly um, qualify you for university or make you more deserving of going to an elite university. Um, and I, I guess you agree with that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I read that story. There was that long article in the Chronicle about Mackenzie Fierston. And yeah, I mean, her her mother was a radiologist and she went to private schools and, you know, just uh, seemed to have had a different life than the way that she portrayed herself in her applications. And so, you know, I was reading this and I thought, you know, like this is, this is, you know, it's sad, but it's unsurprising. I mean, she, she knew what was going to happen. I mean, she understood that this is what elite universities want. She'd also, I guess, told a similar story for um, her Rhodes Scholarship, which she, I think, was awarded, but then subsequently was uh, recommended to to withdraw from uh, after these allegations had, had come out. But, you know, elite universities, they, they prize these kinds of adversity narratives. And it was something that I kind of, I had discovered myself. So, you know, I, when I was applying, so I had mentioned before, I attended this, the, the Warrior Scholar Project, and they had a bunch of tutors uh, at Yale, this two-week program that I had attended before I got into college. Um, and they were very helpful. And I remember when I wrote my personal statement, you know, I wrote an essay about like, you know, basically explaining like, look, here's why my high school grades are so bad. Here's what my early life was like, you know, just um, sort of explaining like, here's what had happened. And I sent it to some of the tutors and they read it and they were like, you know, this is like a, a you know, it's just whatever crazy, sad story, but we don't really know who you are in this. And they were like urging me to add, you know, these words, like they were, they were tossing out these words like color and creativity. And, you know, I guess what they were asking me is like, may, maybe to like, at least the way that I interpreted was like, you know, we want to know like your character, um, you know, how did these forces shape you? And that was something that I'd never really thought about. I thought like, yeah, I went through all this stuff. Like a lot of my friends growing up, they went through all this stuff too. It's not like, I didn't think of it as like you're saying, like this ennobling, powerful, transformative experience um, until, you know, I had gotten this feedback and and then later entered the universities and realized like, oh, like victimhood is this like, it's it's a cultural currency. It's a cachet here to throw around how, you know, you had these bad experiences or you're a member of this or that uh, disadvantaged group. And people spoke about it with such sort of eloquence and passion. And all of that was kind of uh, perplexing to me because, you know, the people that I knew growing up who really did uh, live like really difficult uh, lives, who had overcome a lot of hardship they, you know, they didn't uh, boast about it or broadcast it very much. Um, 
And I remember, so when I was uh, at Yale, I, I was mentoring this this guy, uh, this guy Daniel. He was a former Marine, very similar background to me. Um, you know, his mom was a drug addict. He was raised in foster homes, and I mean, he you know probably had a worse life than me in a lot of ways. I mean, he so you know, he he was black. And, you know, grew up in, you know, really tough neighborhoods and all this stuff. And when he was writing about his story and, you know, it was like, you know, just different from what I was hearing from a lot of my peers on campus. And so, you know, he and I had a long conversation and I tried to explain to him, like, this is kind of what they're looking for, right? Like, you can't just explain what happened. You have to explain, like, you know, how how it shaped you and how, what, like, how your perspective can whatever, like... Um, you know, uh, broaden the discourse at the university and what you can bring and all this stuff. And it was like, it was very weird for me, like that experience to like, realize like, oh, you really have to sort of like instrumentalize your life story in this way. And, um, and anyway, so, so one of the pieces, like the points that I was trying to make in that piece was that like, you know, people who are already a member of the sort of middle and upper classes, are the best at doing this. Like, it's a weird thing. The university is like, oh, we want uh, adversity narratives. And yet this is uh, the, the people who are the best at accentuating their marginalization are the people who aren't maybe as marginalized as like the, the like true people who are truly, uh, you know, growing up in dysfunction, deprivation. And I cited a study uh, this, that had come out of Stanford last year showing that uh, the content of personal essays for college applications correlate more strongly with the applicant's family income than um than sat scores so in other words like uh, your essay content predicts your income better than your sat scores do and mm. to me this made perfect sense because it's like you know an sat is like it's there are there it's bounded the rules are straightforward you can study for it you can understand it um you know but but for an essay, which is the evaluations are much more subjective. The person reading it comes from a particular social class and a you know, probably comes from a certain kind of perspective about the world and what they're hoping to read about. And the person writing it tends to know like how to fashion their essays in a way that please admissions committees. And I think that, yeah, this 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 emphasis is kind of creating incentives to embellish or fabricate, but then also putting um truly disadvantaged people uh, at a further disadvantage because they're not necessarily going to communicate their stories in ways that are, you know, broadly appealing to people who staff the admissions committees. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I was very fortunate because I had, I'd had some help with my, my essays in terms of, you know, what, like what, what, what was the best way to, to frame it? But uh, you know, it's uh, th- there are sort of cultural cues in these essays that um, that really work to to advantage um, already privileged people. Mm. Yeah, we don't have personal essays, but um, we have, or we had. I don't know if this, they still have um, the same system in operation. Mm. Um, but when I was applying to university, we had en- special. We had A levels, mm. which were our school exams um and i think they're called as levels now um i'm not certain but and we also had specific entrance exams that you could take for oxford and cambridge and i took the cambridge ones and i um i got exceptionally high marks in the cambridge um entrance exams in particular the english literature one so i got a distinction it was the second highest um mark of any uh, that anybody got who was applying that year and uh 
But when I arrived for my college interview, the director of studies told me afterwards that they almost didn't offer me a place because because I came across as so weird in my interviews. <laughs> and okay. um, you know, I think the thing was I had basically never had an in-depth conversation with an adult huh. or you know not since I was 11 years old for the past kind of seven years of mm. my life and seven very formative years there was no adult person with whom I had with whom I had really had any kind of conversation beyond the most begrudging the kind of you know when people ask you how is your day and you're like it was fine Mm. Um, when I spoke to adults, I answered in monosyllables. You know, I didn't feel there was, I didn't have an adult who really took a strong interest in me. Yeah. And this is not a demonization of my sister. She did her best, but she, uh, you know, was faced with bringing up a child that she hadn't wanted to have and couldn't really relate to. So, you know, I didn't have an adult who was interested in me or who, with whom I enjoyed chatting. So, uh, the conversations didn't seem weird to me at the time, but looking back, I can imagine why I came across it so bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, that, that to me is, it's, it's a sort of a, a parallel situation to, to, yeah, what, what I had been describing was that, um, even, yeah, conversations are sort of like essays, you know, there's, there's a sort of, uh, uh, you know, there's a feel for the other person and whether or not you get along. And, and a lot of the things that, that go into that are, you know, your background and your upbringing and all of those things. Do you have the same kinds of interests? And I think, uh, yeah, a lot of people could potentially be overlooked if we focus more on those subjective factors rather than, you know, how, uh, how well they might perform on a test or um, other, other sort of indicators of, of potential academic talent. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's uh yeah, it would yeah it would have been a shame to for for them to to overlook you or or to underexplore you know students who happen to be you know maybe a little bit eccentric or something. Just um, yeah, it's, I think that's that's not really a, a fair way to to assess applicants. I think the other thing that really resonated with with me in your writing is that I am often accused, and that is the correct verb, of having had a privileged upbringing. Because I went to a very expensive um, private school, public school as we call it here. Um, I went to an old girls' public, all girls' public boarding school. Um, I went as a petitioner, as we call it here. So I, I had a scholarship basically. Um, no one was paying any fees for me, but I did go to an extremely posh school. And then I went to Cambridge. And I do feel that I was in many respects lucky, but I'm really hesitant to describe this as privilege since it involved both my, apart from the fact that both my parents died. And, um, I absolutely hated that school and I was completely <laughs> miserable for nine years. You know, my, I had an absolutely miserable late childhood. And I, so I feel very bristly when people, um, accuse me of having had a privileged upbringing. I think it's such a narrow understanding of what privilege is to just reduce it down to, you know, whatever sort of name brand school you happen to have gone to, or, you know, it's, I, I think it's there, there's, it's money does not determine everything. I mean, there's so much more to what goes into happiness and, 
you know, whatever privilege or whatever than just those things. I mean, I mean, it's, it's odd because like on the one hand, we, there are these cultural tropes about how, you know, oh, like the reason why, you know, people are unhappy or because, you know, whatever, like basically everything comes down to economics as the explainer for everything, whether it's, uh, you know, behavior or crime or what have you. And yet, any one of us could name off, you know, uh, uh, you know, wealthy people who commit crimes or live unhappy lives or are somehow emotionally impoverished in one way or another. And, you know, there's plenty. I mean, just because you go to an elite university, there's plenty of variation in terms of people's outlook and experiences and backgrounds and so on. Um, you know, I've had this accusation leveled at me as well about being privileged and I also Hi. kind of <laughs> kind of at it too, but you know, it, and it's weird because like I sort of understand where they're coming from. I do feel fortunate in many ways, but it's like mm-hmm. that's not like that's not the only marker of of a good life or satisfaction or you know. So, yeah, I uh, I definitely sympathize there. It's also possible to, um, I mean, some of your experiences. I think it's impossible to frame in a in a way in. A, in in a kind of um, grateful manner, it's impossible to say. Well, it was you were lucky that um, that uh, your mother got addicted to drugs, um, or the various of which we've only covered some. The various terrible emotional betrayals and disappointments and just awful circumstances that you went through as a child. Um, but I think that with a few exceptions, um, it's almost always possible to tell your to frame your life story as a story of for, of good fortune as i prefer to call it rather than privilege because privilege has become such a slur <laughs> it's always it's almost always possible to to frame your story in a positive way or in a negative way just because globally speaking i'm exceptionally fortunate but you know, I could also frame myself as unfortunate in lots of other ways. For example, my income is well below the median, um, uh, well below, and would probably be considered poverty level by some people listening. But on the other hand, you know, I'm more fortunate than most, probably the majority of people on the planet. Mm. So it's it's possible to to narrate things in a way that emphasizes your quote unquote privilege or to narrate things in a way that emphasizes your quote-unquote victimhood. And if you're a good writer, you can do both with ease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's, uh, for for most people, I think it would be useful and, yeah, to, to, to keep both of those things in mind. And this, uh, yeah, the, this veering into, you know, prizing victimhood uh, that, that uh, a lot of very sort of, you know, very affluent people have, have somehow been promoting is probably detrimental it would be good to sort of recenter um gratitude um you know it's uh it, yeah this is also i think i think gratitude is also uh something that that is being overlooked so yeah certainly on a um i think again there's this confusion between the so- sociological level and the psychological level that on a societal level, it's important to uh, help people who are deprived or oppressed or discriminated against or um, impoverished. Um, but on a personal level, psychologically, the valorization of victimhood creates some very perverse incentives. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that is often, I think a lot of people are aware that this, this has been happening. I mean, that was one of the interesting sort of reactions to that Mackenzie Fierston story is that a lot of people were like, sort of not that surprised by it. And, uh, and it would be interesting to see, you know, if there are other ways to identify, um, extraordinary talent besides just um just that sort of focus on overcoming adversity and yeah yeah i mean because for every story like that that is seemingly fabricated or embellished um there are probably many others that are that are overlooked i mean i saw a lot of um sort of duplicity going on i mean students uh pretending to be dyslexic to get out of the foreign language requirement or you know just sort of gaming the system in whatever way they can to get ahead and, you know, this is just like one example of that of like, oh, well, if this is what what uh, what I have to do to succeed, then I'll just do it. And so in this case, it's, uh, you know, the sort of victimhood narrative. So I think there are there may be maybe more uh, more sort of fruitful alternatives. Mm, yeah, well, I, I do think that it's um, people will always game the system and that doesn't necessarily mean in itself that the system is wrong. So I do support a strong welfare state, a social safety net, um, but many people also game that system. So that a, a certain degree of uh, free riding and exploiting of the system is inevitable. But I think some aspects of it just are so subjective that they lend themselves to exploitation. Um, and I think actually race is probably one of those things. And that's why you get so many people pretending to be Native American or to be people of color who, who aren't. Um, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've, uh, that was sort of an interesting example of this, of like, uh, you know, there have been many cases of people pretending to be, you know, a member of some ethnic group or something that they're not. But then this was a case where, yeah, it was uh, sort of co-opting a a different kind of experience um, that, you know, that can easily be checked. Yeah, I've noticed that. Um, so I am a member of a really small minority ethnic group, Indian Parsi. And oh, I'm Indian Parsi in my father's side, and it's patrilineal. And I have noticed that um, when uh, people who are especially more woke people on Twitter who are fighting with me, so not all the woke people I know on Twitter. I'm friend, also very friendly with some woke people. But those who are hostile towards me um, really hate that. And they insist that I'm not mm. um, Indian. My father wasn't Indian. And it's like a kind of, again, a sort of racial sumptuary law. Huh. Um, you're not good enough to be to have an Indian father. <laughs> wow, that is so um, bizarre. Wow. And they absolutely insist, well, you look white, therefore you are white, full stop. You lady are 100% white. <laughs> I get this all the time. That's and so I think odd. If, if you actually agreed with my views, if I were more woke in my politics, then you would be saying, oh, listen to this mixed race woman <laughs> you know, yeah. from a from an oppressed, uh, the Parsis are not actually oppressed, but from an oppressed ethnic minority. Um, mm. She is, you know, a, a BAME, um, British <coughs> and uh, black and Middle Eastern, um, right. uh, black and minority ethnic, sorry, that's what it stands for. 
um, or BIPOC or, um, you know, it, but it's uh, rather than just being a factual label that actually describes people's parentage, it's become this kind of um, badge of honor. Yeah. So it's very <laughs> odd. I mean, the whole, yeah, the whole racial politics thing is something that I'm still <laughs> kind of confused by and, and disturbed by too, that um, <laughs> never would have expected that, um, you know, that the sort of the most educated members of society would be sort of disproportionately uh, preoccupied by sort of racial and ethnic issues. But yeah, yeah, still learning. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, uh, this has been great. I really enjoyed this. And um, I will put um, details of uh, where to find your writing um, and interviews and other things in the show notes. So don't worry about that. Um, I think it's easier for people just to read and click on that information rather mm -hmm. than telling them. And I am, I very much hope you will come back again um, after your book is out because I'm dying to read it and I would love to talk to you about it. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back. Um, yeah, I'd love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anna. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash two for tea. Have a wonderful week.